Welcome to Blocked and Reported. I'm Katie Herzog, and we've got a special treat for you this week, and by that I mean no Jesse. My assistant co-host Jesse's in the UK this week. He said something about joining those climate activists who throw soup on paintings, so if you see a tall Jew wandering around the British Museum with a can of minstroni peeking out of his cargo shorts, stop him. So instead of our usual bullshit, this week I'm bringing you a conversation with the publicist Mitchell Jackson. Now, the name Mitchell Jackson might not mean anything to you, but you might recognize the name Mitchell Sunderland, which is Mitchell's maiden name, or the gay male equivalent of a maiden name, Mandan name. Anyway, before our guest was known as the publicist Mitchell Jackson, he was known as the writer Mitchell Sunderland. Mitchell was a staff writer and editor at Vice Magazine, and he described his beat there as the gay beat, which meant sex and celebrities. Now, Mitchell was very publicly fired from Vice after a scandal that briefly consumed the media world. But as you will hear, the story that was reported at the time is not the entire truth. I've been trying to get Mitchell to tell his side of the story for years, but he was hamstrung by a non-disclosure agreement he signed with the company. That company, however, is now facing bankruptcy and probably has bigger concerns than Mitchell, so he is ready to tell all for the first time. We're also going to talk about his work with the infamous Caroline Calloway, an influencer who was unmasked as an alleged fraud by her former best friend in New York Magazine a few years ago. Caroline now has a new book out called Scammer, and it's been getting glowing reviews, and Mitchell helped make that happen. We're also going to get some advice from him on what to do when you are facing cancellation. But before we get to all that, Mitchell has a very interesting background, a background that has influenced how he thinks about surviving a scandal. So let's start there. Mitchell Jackson, welcome to Blocked and Reported. Thank you for having me, Katie. I want to start at the beginning. You were raised in a Florida puppy breeding dynasty, which sounds amazing, but apparently was very dramatic and controversial. Tell me about your upbringing. Yeah, so I had a very unique upbringing. Basically, I'm the first person in my family not to have ever worked in the dog industry, other than cleaning dog bowls when I was a child when I, I, I'm on the autism spectrum, so I would love to clean the dog bowls in the store on the weekends. Um, <laughs> that was my autistic obsession. But I have a very unique upbringing because I kind of belong to like the Kennedys of, of dog breeding. Animal activists would say the Kennedys of puppy mills. But so I, literally, if you work in the dog industry, you're either probably related to me, you've had sex with one of my relatives, or you're in <laughs> like a 40-year feud with one of my relatives. Um, so I grew up in the Miami area. My mom owned the biggest uh, independent pet store in South Florida when I was a kid. She would have 200 dogs in the store at a time, sometimes 250. And I spent a lot of time with her on the road. As a publicist, I'm often code switching between Coastal Elite and MAGA. And I think I'm able to do that and um, because of my upbringing, because I lived in the Miami area, in Fort Lauderdale in Miami. And then I would fly with my mom to rural Missouri and rural Iowa to either see relatives or to see women she did business with, you know, Amish people, Mennonites. So I really was code switching all the time since I was I was toddler. Um, and the dog industry was also very unique because it's primarily women, actually, which most people don't know. The dog industry was founded by one of my relatives in the 60s, who she was a housewife who wanted to get away from her husband that she thought was an idiot. <laughs> and they owned a Mennonite, not a Mennonite farm, they owned, <laughs> owned a mink farm. And a bunch of animal activists had broken into the mink farm and freed the mink. And the mink all got ran over and my relative, and she's, she's like a distant relative to be clear. She's not like a close relative, but she always wanted to get away from her husband. And she had been doing all these businesses on the side. And she had like in today's dollars, a hundred grand in cash buried in her basement. And she told her husband, we're going to start breeding dogs. 
And he thought this was insane, but she was like, well, we have cages and I have money and you don't. And that's actually how the commercial dog business was founded. So I spent the like, first five years of my life with watching my mother. I was on her hip when she was selling dogs in the store. She'll tell you she was like, she did not take maternity leave. She was breastfeeding me on a pet store floor. Um, I was on the road with her. I was literally helping her organize tax expenses when I was five, but surrounded by these very domineering Midwestern women. They have, some people call them the dog mothers, like the godfather. And I didn't even know that in most households, the woman didn't run the show until I went to elementary school. And on career day, I had dressed up as a house husband because <laughs> I thought that's what men did. And mm-hmm. I was shocked that the other boys were like firefighters or cops or but my, my, I had a very warped worldview in that sense because that's just how the dog industry is. It's a, it's a very matriarchal society. Okay. So that's really interesting. It, it never had occurred to me that somebody would have actually started the dog breeding industry. It sort of seems like something that would have always existed, but I guess not. It makes sense. Well, it had existed, but they commercialized it. Like the, the, this woman and other women who copied her, it was all women in the early 60s. They were the ones who created the what they call brokers, which are essentially agents who represent breeders and then sell them wholesale. They're almost like the William Morris of dog breeders. <laughs> and so they had created that. And the you did not see the rise in pet stores till after World War II for two reasons. One, during the, um, during the Dust Bowl, the USDA had given farmers money to start breeding dogs because they wanted them to diversify. You could say that the government created the original puppy mills because mm. those were not dog farms that had standards. But then because of the baby boom, people wanted pets for their children. So it just it kind of evolved organically, but it, it was very different than other industries. So your family was constantly at war with animal rights activists. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah. Um, some of my earliest memories are of animal activists screaming at us or the local news station coming after my family. Joy Reid was actually the local anchor in Miami. She was a very homophobic, conservative anchor, actually. No way. Um, and her network did a lot of Channel 7. I believe she was at Channel 7. I would have to double check. But Channel 7 did a lot of segments about my mother. And it was all. It was hard for me because people would always make it sound like my mom was doing this on behalf of like evil men. But my mom... She grew up on a dog farm in rural Quebec, but her family did not have money. And when she was a, she had a baby when she was 19 and literally started her business in a, in a trailer. Like this is a, she's like the definition of a self-made woman. Mm-hmm. And so that would bother me the way they would speak up my mother. And then when I was a teenager, uh, a sect uh, that had been inspired by the Animal Liberation Front. Do you know what that is? Yeah. Earth Liberation Front. So yeah, they were an eco-terrorist group. Um, there was a sect that spun off of that called Negotiation is Over. That was ran by a woman named Camille Marino, who spent she spent quite a t- bit of time in jail for stalking uh, a professor who was studying animals for, I believe it was cancer research, but I would have to double check that. And some of her followers began protesting my family's pet store every other weekend when I was a teenager. And the reason for this was that my mother owned a freestanding building so they could get a permit. They couldn't get a permit if she was in a shopping plaza. For okay, gotcha. So she was just convenient. And she was also the biggest. And it was around the time of the recession, ironically, in 2008. So we were having a lot of money problems as a family. And these people started showing up every weekend, uh, protesting. Camille had a theory that if you killed the children of the pet store owner, they would shut down their business. So she was always threatening to kill my mother and her children, meaning me. Jesus. Um, they used to stand outside the pet store and yell, blood money, leave town, blood babies, leave town. Me being the blood baby. Mm-hmm. And... My mom, though, told us, like, we, my siblings and I were all scared. Like, they even one time they came outside of our house and drag queens lived across the street because we were living in Florida. Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the drag queens across the street hose them, actually. <laughs> um, but my mom told us, she was like, you can't, you're never allowed to cry in this family. Was something we were taught, like, as children. You're not allowed to cry. Crying is banned. And she told us, you don't acknowledge these people. You fight back in a funny way. So she got a sign that said, welcome PETA, and hung it over their heads, like a banner. Mm-hmm. And she had free hot dogs for them. She had a petting <laughs> zoo. Um and then she, my friend, teenage, she would pay my teenage friends to come and counter-protest. And we, they would get, like, hammered. They would be, like, drunk teens fighting with the Animal Liberation Front. Um, and she, that was, and ironically, because of the protest, that actually saved her business because it caused such a, a ruckus on the street that they, people would stop by. And they'd look and they'd be like, oh, these dogs are taking care of. They're cute. Let's buy a dog. So the animal activists inadvertently saved my family, which is kind of the grand irony of all this. Okay, so you go from Florida Dog Dynasty to college at Sarah Lawrence, which is a small private school in New York that is possibly more Oberlin than Oberlin. How does a Florida man end up at Sarah Lawrence? Well, to Sarah Lawrence, the way I ended up there is actually really funny. I went to a private school in the Fort Lauderdale area that some people call Drug Cartel High because there were so many drug cartel kids there. Mm -hmm. Money's different in South Florida. It's not like a private school in New York. Um, It's all first-generation money, and a lot of it's dirty. And I was one of the only gay kids. There were other gay kids, but nobody bullied me because it's kind of a blessing I was on the autism spectrum because I didn't lack a filter, so I would always talk back. I... One of my friends reminded me the other day that I beat up a, a jock with my Snow White book back. Um, <laughs> like, I had a Snow White man purse that I, like, slapped the shit out of this athlete with. But so my guidance counselor, it was a prep school still, so they were obsessed with college. My mom didn't want me to go to college. She thinks college is a waste of money. Um, so I had to get a scholarship if I wanted to go to college, which I went to. I did get uh, a lot of financial aid and scholarships for Sarah Lawrence. But my counselor was like, well, you're gay, so you have to go to a liberal arts school. Mm-hmm. So I just applied to a bunch of liberal arts schools, not really even knowing what that meant. And touring colleges with my dog industry mother was hilarious. She actually walked out of the Sarah Lawrence tour um, and said it was a freak school. But they <laughs> offered me they offered me a lot of money, so I went. Um, and I, I loved the professors. I mean, I studied uh, – it's funny now. I studied journalism and gender studies with a focus in queer theory. Um So I, you know, and Sarah Lawrence was where the first women's history master's program was created. Mm -hmm. So I had some amazing professors. There was an amazing queer theory professor named Julie Abraham, who I think when people think of queer theory, they think of, I don't know, like a bustle article. But you were not allowed to talk in her class without citing a source. She would bring in very controversial material. Like we'd read articles about saying you were not born gay. We'd read homophobic things. Mm -hmm. we, We would read everything and you were not allowed to talk in her class unless you cited a source. So there was no uh, rambling in her class. Right. And she would also bring up that in Germany, they thought in the 1920s, they thought everyone was an invert who was gay. Like um, a gay man was a woman on the inside, a lesbian was a man on the inside. And that was considered conventional wisdom incorrect. So she would also point to that and say, what we believe today might not be accurate. Right. Which is a very controversial thing, I think, to say. And in the world we live in today. So she was fantastic. I had amazing professors and I use a lot of my Sarah Lawrence education, ironically, as a publicist. I do a lot of media training for tech CEOs. And a lot of those guys, they can program a computer. They're a great engineer. They can build a battery, but they have no humanity skills. So I come in and I almost give them their humanities brain. And I train them on how to talk, how to dress. It's a bit like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. I call it Queer Eye for the Tech Guy. Mm-hmm. We bring in a stylist. We throw away all their clothes. We explain to them why they need to wear deodorant. And <laughs> I learned a lot about that at Sarah Lawrence, to be to be honest. 
at the same time, the students at Sarah Lawrence, I was not a natural fit. I mean, I came from Miami and Fort Lauderdale. I was, I was always in trouble. And I remember a straight girl banned me from a safe space because I said fag to another gay boy. Mm-hmm. And she would not let me back in the safe space unless I issued a public apology to her. <laughs> to and her, to the straight woman. To the straight woman, yes. And the gay boy I was with was like, you need to calm down, girl. Like, he's going to double down. Like, you don't know Mitchell. And it turned into a whole ordeal. She hung up signs about me calling me homophobic, a straight girl. And I'm wow. a gold star gay. I am wow. a gold star gay. I've been gay since I, I came out when I was 13. It was ridiculous. Um, and so the students and I didn't always mesh. And I remember when that happened, I complained to a professor and they said, well, don't worry. The real world isn't anything like Sarah Lawrence, but the whole world became Sarah Lawrence. Yeah. Um, but it was Sarah Lawrence itself is a bit like a cult though. I mean, it's a small campus. You live in a bubble. They call it the bubble. It's outside of New York city. So it is a bit like a cult. And I wanted to get away from that. So I started applying for internships and I got an internship my sophomore year at, Vice, which was its own cult. Okay, so so you get to Vice in 2012, and what was it like back then? So I, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> it was like no place on earth. It was only a, 11 years ago, but in retrospect, it's actually – I can't even imagine that it happened because it's so it's – so, nothing like this would happen today. Mm-hmm. I remember the first day of work, um, like a dildo flew over my head. Uh-huh. They were playing like catch with a dildo. We had to work on the 4th of July – And we, on the 4th of July, for some reason, there was the entire editorial team sat in a movie theater watching Octomom's porno. (laughs) It was so bizarre when you think about it today. This is like HR violation after HR violation after HR violation. Yes. And that, yeah, I mean, and the HR was its own violation in and of itself. Um, And it it was, I, because I came from the dog industry, like, I didn't know what HR was. I'd never seen people who work at corporations. Most of my friends, parents in South Florida were, I I either didn't know what they did for a living or they owned, like, a strip club or something. So I wasn't, I didn't understand why some of the things that were happening were wrong. In retrospect, and now that I run my own business, I, there are so many things. I'm like, that never should have happened and I would never allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was like a cult. Everyone, like, if you had been there long enough, you got a ring, uh, like a gold ring from Shane Smith. Um... In, you know, some of the older people, it was, they they worked there, they lived with vice people, they hung out with vice people only. It was like a cult. And it was a double-edged sword. You know, I don't want to say that everything about the company was bad, because you can do politically incorrect content and have a good office culture. Um, that is not what happened there. But some of the, like, the first editor-in-chief I worked for, Rocco Castora, was a genius, and so much of the great vice stuff was in Rocco's era. It was post-Gavin, pre-Disney. It was kind of the golden. And that's Gavin McInnes. Uh, he's a vice founder who is now better known as the founder of the Proud Boys. So you came after him. I have never met. I've never met Gavin. Um, and you weren't allowed to say his name in the office. We used to call him he who must not be named like Voldemort. Why? What was the... Why? I mean, when I started working at Vice, I did not... Like, I knew what Vice was because when I was in high school, my mom had a house behind her pet store that she hoarded in. And I couldn't get a job at, like, an ice cream parlor, probably because I'm autistic. And so I started throwing parties in that house, and I would charge the straight boys I knew um, <laughs> if they wanted to come to my parties. I would charge them $40 a head <laughs> to get into my house. I would make thousands. of Like, that's how I paid for my first um, – my the money I needed for my first year of college, actually, that wasn't covered by scholarships. Wow. And – uh, some of those boys were skater boys, and they always would have vice. That's how I knew what vice was. I right. didn't know who Gavin was 
when I started working there, but I just remember people whispering, like, he who must not be named. And I just didn't ask questions. I mean, I was 20. I wasn't even 21 yet. I didn't, I just was like, okay, some guy worked here once. I didn't know what he was and definitely didn't know what Gavin McGinnis would become. Yeah, Vice's brand back then was very intentionally problematic. There was some great reporting, even in some of the most dangerous places in the world. But there would also be photos of girls pass out drunk on the street. And they had a regular feature called Hot or Not that was just judging people's looks. It was very masculine, very irreverent. Nothing like the zombie edition that exists today. Yeah, it was very tongue in cheek. You never knew what was being serious. And the one thing I was also, you know, the one thing that's funny about having worked there is I know of so many influential people who were friends with Gavin back in the day and deny it. Like, he brought skinny jeans to Brooklyn. He would hang out with the yeah, yeah, yeahs. I mean... Ryan McGinley was one of his early photographer hires advice. Like, so it's kind of, he's kind of this, I used to call him the vampire of Bedford Avenue or like, because he was just kind of this thing that haunted all these uh, Gen X people that worked around vice. But I, again, I was the youngest person. I was literally the youngest person advice in 2012. I was like everyone's little brother. So, um, but there was great things about the fact that, you know, they would, pay someone 35 grand a year, a 22-year-old, and send them to interview a cartel, you could write some amazing stories that I don't think you could write elsewhere. Like Anthony Weiner's sexting partner, Sydney Leathers, lived in my apartment for a week and went to my college graduation. I wrote, I, you know, I was able to treat the insane clown posse like legitimate artists and defend their free speech. I got to write some amazing stories. The downfall when there's no guardrails, though, and is it's a culture where you'll be encouraged to do bad things or they'll just straight up tell you to do bad things. And this went two mm-hmm. ways. Like sometimes, like I think I paid a real housewife in three thousand dollars in cash once for an interview. It was technically <laughs> is- her for her makeup stylist, but uh-huh. it was clear that it was going to her. Like, and because she would only take cash, this it was clear there was some sort of deal between this this real housewife and her makeup stylist. And Vice knew, and you would sleep at sources' houses and stuff, which in retrospect is a boundary violation. Um, For sure. I can think of at least four sources that either slept at my house or I slept at theirs. And it was part of the story. So it wasn't like we were hiding it. Right. Um, right. And some horrible things did happen. Like, I was one of the only gay people in the office. The There was one other person my age who was a lesbian also. And, like, she was a music blogger. And everyone in the office knew that she was sleeping with a prominent female musician that Vice was covering at the time. And it wasn't, like, Vice cared. And I was sitting next to her one day and a male executive came up to her and grabbed her hand and smelled it. Oh, God. And then said, oh, I was hoping it would have smelled like so-and-so's, you know. Yeah. So it could be it could be a very bad place. And they also scapegoated a lot of people. There was a New York Magazine article about, a you know, the HBO show had, I believe they del- convinced a source to delay her abortion. And they set it up like it was the, the young female producer who did it. But obviously the executives would have known that was happening. Um Wait, they they got a source to delay for their own convenience? Yes. Yes, okay. and that was reported by New York Magazine. But they they set up a, a young pr- female producer to make it sound like it was to her. That ball. was just what happened all the time there. And maybe they weren't told to do it, but they were clearly encouraged. Like, give me a break. Um, and if you're someone like me who likes work it, and you're just following your boss's lead, it can be – it can lead to trouble. Um yes. Uh, which it did. We're going to get to that shortly. But were you there when Vice – I'm not sure like when Vice transitioned from being problematic and sacrosanct to the current ghost of Vice, which is basically woke scold. Were you there over that that transition? Yeah. I mean, I remember <laughs> – 
it happened over time. And it's funny, their traffic went down. I read that Ben Smith book about traffic and their traffic yeah. dramatically declined with that. And I watched some of that happen. And it's ironic because if you look at a place like Barstool Sports, which came up around the same time as Vice, they never sacrificed their audience. They never cared if someone called them problematic. They're the one that got bought. Like no one talks about how Barstool pulled it off. They were the one successful right. digital media company. And I remember what had started to happen was Shane Smith was getting invited um, you know, to meet with very prominent mainstream people. And then we would like, something happened where we were all called into the war room, which was a room in the old Brooklyn office that, uh, that was like an attic basically. So we were called into the war room and we were all like lectured because I guess Shane had, he was either on a yacht or meeting with some Silicon Valley person and pulled up the website. And there was some, I think it was a video about bestiality and it, he got, he was embarrassed and then we were we were all being told that we a had to raise traffic but b couldn't do these stories anymore which those are two conflicting mandates right people want weird goat fucking videos they don't want to be lectured on how caucasian dreadlocks are racist or whatever yeah and the vice audience was premier i mean when i first started there i think it was 80 percent male and i also i also thought that you could you could diversify vice without um changing the tone like i did a lot of stuff that that was about gay culture but i did it in a vice way which i think is actually more um provocative than just having some article about how it's hard to be a gay male or whatever like i did you know they would send i i went to fire island and did stories and you would do it in a vice way but it was it was actually more um groundbreaking because it was a gay person doing it or a woman doing it but then somewhere around the uh, happened where someone decided oh, it needs to just be about, like, how hard it is. And I did a, a, a editor who was actually very homophobic told me I needed to only do articles about, like, AIDS in Africa. And I made a traffic spreadsheet showing him about what, what the gay male audience actually cared about. And it was articles breaking down how Paris Hilton manipulated the media. Like, because I did a... It ties into my PR work. I did, like, a 7,000-word profile of Paris that just broke down how she used the media. It was kind of like a deconstruction of Paris Hilton. And Paris was very involved in the story, obviously. We had great access. And that story did over a million uniques. And he just wanted these stories about, like, AIDS, which is so problematic. And those stories didn't get numbers. Why do you think that was? Why do you think they were trying to change what worked and what was the essential brand into something that that obviously failed? I mean, I, I think Vice Vice went bankrupt recently for lots of reasons, not just because, you know, go woke, go broke. But why do you think the higher ups couldn't see that the existing audience wanted one particular thing and transitioning to something else wasn't going to keep them around. One, I think it was a misread of where the culture was headed because right around the time uh-huh. they go woke, you see things like Red Scare emerge. Right. Um, I think it was a misread of the culture. And secondly, I think some of the older people at Vice have a lot of skeletons in their closet. Ah. And they were overcompensating. There's one a salesperson I worked there who literally said to me after they hired the first trans employee, she came to me and said, there's too many trainees at this company, which is horrific. Uh She's now always posting about pod save America. (laughs) And a lot of them just have, and she, I mean, this particular person in during the me too craze was like calling former employees, crying, worried about things coming out about her. Uh huh. So I think some of it was overcompensating and also just a mystery of the culture. And also they cared a lot about what people said about them. That was the irony. It was like, oh, we're so cool. But they cared more than anyone about what people said about them. And having a few people call them 
problematic or whatever. I don't think they could handle it. And ironically, I often found that the people who were presenting as the wokest were the ones who did the worst things in the office. Interesting. Do you have any uh, examples of that? We'll get to it. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you started out at, at Vice proper and then you moved to Broadly, which was Vice's equivalent of Jezebel, their feminist vertical. How did that happen? Yeah. So Rocco Castoro, the genius Vice editor, had left and he was replaced by a new editor who came from a different Vice office, came to the New York office, was put in charge. I was at that time in talks to have a raise. And he canceled my raise in writing and said it was because he needed, quote, a straight Mitchell. Uh-huh. Which, first of all, I don't know what a straight Mitchell would be because I literally only wrote about gay culture and celebrities. And when I had covered right-wingers, it was like Ann Coulter, which is also gay, gay content. Yeah. Um, so I just went to HR. I didn't really know what to do. Again, I came from a dog industry. There's no HR. And first I had gone to like a, I went to like a gay nonprofit that had like a legal counsel for advice. And the like old stern gay guy was like, you do realize there are people here who are being deported. No one cares that someone canceled your raise. Please get out of here. It was like an old stern gay man. And he was correct. Like worse things have happened to gay people than my boss advice canceling my raise when I'm 22 or 23 or however old I was. And I went to HR and HR was ran by a woman who had come from, I believe she was at Martha Stewart. And before that, she worked for Harvey Weinstein at Miramax. Oh, wow. She only wore white leather suits. <laughs> um, she sometimes called herself Lady Miramax. <laughs> she was looked like the villain from Casper. <laughs> and she was not going to do anything about this boss. However, Tracy Egan Morrissey had come from Jezebel to start broadly – and Tracy was supposed to hire some people that were already at Vice to move over. Mm-hmm. And so that was a solution. So they moved me to Broadly. I liked Tracy's work. So I was, I was into the idea. I, I'm not someone who wants to, you know, cause a fuss. So I moved to Broadly and they moved me to Los Angeles. So that's how I ended up at Broadly. Okay. And Tracy, so I, I read Tracy when she was at Jezebel. Great storyteller. She wrote a piece. Was it her who wrote the piece about like seven days in the life of a tampon after she got a tampon stuck inside of her for a week? I don't. Was that? Her? I don't know if that was her, but she did a lot of stuff in that vein. She's very influential and a visionary. Yeah, and she has sort of disappeared from the culture, at least as far as I know. I, I don't see her stuff anywhere. I don't really know what happened to her. But at one point, she's an example of one of these people who were very problematic. Have uh, like long history of writing problematic shit. At one point, she wrote. I think this was for Jezebel. She wrote. Uh, a piece about wearing like a confederate bikini or maybe she just posted photos of herself wearing a confederate bikini she never uh, to be clear she never posted photos of herself in a confederate bikini someone from what i was told someone who had she had worked with the jezebel had these photos and was threatening to release them okay so during the george floyd stuff when there was this racial racial reckoning in 2020 oh i should also say she had a a quite popular series called Pot Psychology, where she and her best friend, who's also a Jezebel writer, a gay guy named Rich, uh, Juz- how you pronounce his name? Juzwiak? I have no idea. Okay. They would get stoned and they would basically give people advice. It was quite funny at the time. Um, so during the racial reckoning, they started a podcast and I listened to one or two episodes and she was quite literally crying about her Confederate bathing suit her confederate flag bathing suit like she i don't know if it was genuine but she was like it was like a mea culpa for this what she this bathing suit that she had like owned a decade before as a gag 
So she's an example of this like real shift from like old Vice to new Vice. I will also say, I, I, I haven't listened to that episode, so I can't comment on that. I will say Tracy had a vision when she got to Vice, which I think was a very ahead of its time. You know, she, she wanted it to be like a problematic feminist site, a controversial feminist mm-hmm. site. It was kind of pre-Red Scare. She was just a little too early. She also saw Me Too coming. Yeah. She did this amazing investigation at Vice into the uh, sexual harassment in the NFL that unfortunately got steamrolled in the office and came out right before Christmas, so it died on the vine. But she really saw where the culture was headed, and there has been reporting in the Daily Beast about Tracy being problematic with her female staff in the New York office. I worked in LA. You know, there are definitely things Tracy did I disagree with, but as far as Vice broadly, like, there were it was often the girls who put on a smiley face and were woker than thou who were really stabbing people in the back in the office and really doing dirty things in the office. So I think Tracy was a fall woman for some of these people. Um, Okay. So your time at Vice ended in 2017 and it ended in scandal after the BuzzFeed reporter Joe Bernstein had this blockbuster scoop about Milo Yiannopoulos. It was called Here's How Breitbart and Milo Smuggled White Nationalism into the Mainstream. And you were implicated in in that report. Okay. So I'm going to read a bit from that piece. In addition to tech and entertainment, Yiannopoulos had hidden helpers in the liberal media against which he and Bannon, that's Steve Bannon, fought so uncompromisingly. A long-running email group devoted to mocking stories about so- the social justice internet included, predictably, Yiannopoulos's friend Ann Coulter, but also Mitchell Sunderland, a senior staff writer at Broadly, Vice's women's channel. And then, skipping forward a, a few lines, Please mock this fat feminist, Sunderland wrote to Yiannopoulos in May 2016, along with a link to an article by the New York Times columnist Lindy West, who frequently writes about fat acceptance. And while Sunderland was Bradley's managing editor, he sent a Bradley video about the satanic temple and abortion rights to Tim Gannett with instructions to, quote, do whatever with this on Breitbart. It's insane. The next day, Breitbart published an article titled, Satanic Temple Joins Planned Parenthood and Pro-Abortion Crusade. In a statement to BuzzFeed News, a vice spokesperson wrote, quote, We are shocked and disappointed by this highly inappropriate and unprofessional conduct. We just learned about this and have begun a, f- begun a formal review of the matter. A day after the story was published, Vice fired Mitchell Sunderland, according to a company spokesperson. So, Mitchell, I'm sorry to, to read that to you. But this became a huge, a huge story in the media, and much of the story centered on you because you were at this feminist outlet. And here you were. You were feeding Milo content. And it, it looked bad. It looked really bad. And this was covered basically everywhere. It was covered by The Times, covered by The Post. It was uh, it also covered by my former outlet, The Stranger, who basically wrote a, p- a piece gloating that you were fired. Um, in a moment, I want you to tell me about what that experience was like for you. But first, your side of the story has never been told because you signed an NDA with Vice, and so you couldn't tell it. But now Vice is bankrupt, and they can't pay their bills, so you you feel safe finally telling this story. Mitchell, what was really going on beyond the scenes? Why were you, an editor at a feminist outlet, asking Milo Yiannopoulos to mock Lindy West? So I met Milo Yiannopoulos, actually, because he wrote for Vice. He Oh, interesting. Um, that was never brought up in the coverage. I, I presumed someone would have put the two, two together. But he wrote one op-ed, I believe, for the politics editor at Vice.com. I believe it was about an Anne Rand play. Um, so I met him that way. The politics editor had assigned him that story. And when I was at Broadly, I, I mean, when I was at Broadly, I was asked to do a lot of things. Like I was instructed by someone, I won't say who, but an editor, because all these media people know each other. I was instructed by an editor to read Lindy's book, Lindy West's book and mock it on Twitter. Um, 
And that was while I was employed at Vice. So those tweets they would have seen, and I was instructed to read the book and find things to make fun of. And I was instructed to communicate with Yiannopoulos for two reasons. One was to joke around with him to get information from him for stories. That is what the Please Mock This Fat Feminist email was about. I was just joking around with him in an email chain. So he would later give us other information on other things that I was instructed to cover. And then secondly, Vice wanted Yiannopoulos to make fun of our content for the traffic. Mm -hmm. And here's why. In the Ben Smith book, he talks about how they would send Drudge articles, Matt Drudge, to link out to their articles. That was something that a lot of people did. And when there was an editor at Broadly, I won't say her name because I don't want to get her in trouble, but she, her job was, was um, based on traffic. And she had asked me to send articles to Yiannopoulos and have him mock them because we got more traffic when they mocked us right. than if they praised us. For instance, I, ha- I was instructed to ask Roger Stone to tweet out the rape NFL story, mm-hmm. which he did, but no one clicked on the link because he was praising it. Oh, yeah. You only get traffic if you're a right winger, you get traffic when liberals make fun of you and vice versa. So I had I was instructed to send Yiannopoulos the, the abortion video. And I believe I had texted him and asked him who to send it to. And he told me to send it to Jeanette or whatever that guy's last name is. Um, And that was what that was about. They wanted the traffic. And so my editors above me were aware. Yeah. So you were quite literally doing your job. And it is it is like it's it's pretty fucked up how this ecosystem works, how these and you you still see this today. You can see this with activism. I, I think you can see it with a uh, with uh, Matt Walsh and the HRC. They sort of depend on each other to direct hate towards each other, because in both cases, it increases traffic, it increases donations, it increases clicks. And that it, and according to your telling, this was the relationship that Vice had with Milo. Uh, But did you have any ethical qualms about this at the time? I mean, I was, I believe I was, when those, those emails were sent quite a bit of time before that article came out, I would have been 23 or 24. And I just thought that's how media worked. And I didn't, that's fun. The funny thing about race is a lot of the coverage I have found never truly captures what the company was like, because it's not like any other media organization. It's, it's a media organization that was, I, I mean, at the time it was a media organization that was more like a cult. So I didn't, I I just was doing my job. And they, sometimes they would ask you directly to do things, like especially regarding that abortion video, they directed me to do it. And other times you would be uh, suggested to do things, inferred. It was a very toxic culture. And when it comes to why I didn't speak out at the time, I was contacted by BuzzFeed the day the article came out. And I Vice immediately gagged me with an NDA. Mm-hmm. They said, you cannot talk. Um, I was instructed, I worked from home at the time. I was one of the first people to work from home. And I was instructed to come to the LA office and a New York executive was flying out to see me. I met with her in the boardroom. She was going to fire me that day, but I turned around my computer and I showed her the email where I was instructed Mm -hmm. to send this specific abortion video. She then um, asked me to leave. They immediately turned off my computer access. The next day they fired me. Um, and they released that uh, some statement on Twitter, which the editor who had asked me to send this video retweeted. And then literally after she retweeted it, this editor called me and left me this voicemail about how the whole team loved working with you, uh, yada, yada. Like, you know, we're here for you. Right after she had retweeted this statement saying they, you know, they had no idea any of this was happening. And, and what happened after the story broke? Shit must have gotten really crazy for you. 
uh, you mean when I <laughs> had to go into hiding and had a stalker because I called uh, someone fat? Yeah, it's someone who <laughs> self-identifies as fat and is, in fact, a fat activist who actually would probably call herself a fat feminist. Yeah, so <laughs> I was doxxed. And I did not speak about it at the time because I was advised by a security person not to speak about it publicly. They said it would make it worse. Yeah. So I was doxxed. Um, one of my sources was the owner of the Bunny Ranch. His name was Dennis Hoff. He's passed away. And the Bunny Ranch, that's a brothel in Reno. And it was his birthday that weekend. So he saw that I had been doxxed. He saw I was getting death threats. And he called me and said, you know, you're invited to my birthday party anyways, but come and I'm going to put you up in a hotel room for your safety. So I drove to the Bunny Ranch with my now husband <laughs> And so I spent, when I got to the Bunny Ranch, Dennis had 50 hookers lined up to yell, fuck Vice, (laughs) when I walked in the room at his birthday party. And then he put us in a hotel room, and I spent the week with Dennis Hoff, uh, Heidi Fleiss, Joey Botafuco. That would have made a great Vice story. (laughs) It would have made a great Vice story. Um, Yeah, but, you know, I also did have a stalker after this who was following me around. Like, they followed me around on my birthday, actually, that that uh shortly after that so it was kind of my the safety concerns and when we got back from the bunny ranch um the gate in front of my door in my apartment building it was like a 1920s building so there was a gate in front of your door someone had actually ripped off the gate while we were gone so it was it was scary but i'm glad that everything happened because like first of all i was pushed to grow up i think every like i'm so glad this happened when i was 25 i'm so glad i learned the hard way how you should run a business how you should treat your staff I, um, you know, I just, you know, who wants to be a, I mean, I know people who are like hipster assholes at 30 and it's embarrassing. I was forced to grow up and I'm really grateful that this all happened. Are you pissed about how Vice treated you? Maybe at the time it was, it's been so long Yeah. that like, it's been so long. I mean, how can you be mad at a bankrupt person? (laughs) It's been so long and it's funny. I've seen the culture change where now it's like, it's chic to be canceled. I know people who have not been canceled Mm -hmm. who claim they're canceled. And it's like, you're like, don't appropriate my culture. You've not been canceled. (laughs) My culture is not your costume. Yeah. So I don't, you know, it's been so long. I'm not someone, I think because I, I grew up in the dog industry. I think I was maybe better suited to just get up and, um, get back to work. You know, that's just the way I was programmed. And I was upset for a little bit. And actually I was very close. She's dead now, but I was very close to this uh, elderly trans woman named the goddess bunny in LA. And when I was upset that like first month, I wasn't like leaving my house and she called me. And this is a woman who had polio and HIV and was a little person and in a wheelchair. Jesus. She called me and she claimed she was dying of cancer. So I like left the house, rushed to go see her. She had completely made it up. Just to get you out of the house? To get me out of the house. Wow, that's a good friend. And then she told me, like, I'm in a wheelchair and I've never complained. Mm-hmm. So shut up. And yeah. she was right. But it did. I mean, your career in journalism ended because of this. Did you immediately think, like, I'll pivot to PR? Were you pissed about that? Well, I actually did journalism. I, I was write, writing Actually, like, right again after it happened, I Penthouse was assigning me okay. stories right away. I did the first profile of Stormy Daniels, which I strategically strategically <laughs> leaked the story to um, reporters that had criticized me. <laughs> and they published – before it came out, they picked it up and published anecdotes from it, not knowing I was the one who had wrote it. And did you change your name around this time from Jackson to – or from Sunderland to Jackson? I know it was shortly. We got married, my husband and I, um, after this happened because for a variety, we were going to get married anyways. And we got married and we decided 
later down the line for me to do that in the event that we have children, just so our children have the same name. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's honestly there. I just got married. Okay, so this was not a part of trying to like rehabilitate your reputation. No, it's part of being a feminine husband. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so at that point, you're young still, and you have to pivot. Uh, so you get into PR. So the way I got into PR was um, first a publisher who had been a source hired me to do PR for books, which was fun. And then some other publicists who I knew from when I back when I was a reporter heard I was doing that. And they reached out to me and they wanted to have a former reporter on retainer to evaluate pitches because they had the theory that only former reporters should be doing PR, which I think is correct. You know, when I was at Vice, I would receive NFL footballs from the NFL. I've never written about football once in my life. Right. Um, so publicists do idiotic things all the time and they were right. So I just started getting referrals and eventually I had a business and I was, because I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and dog business, I was predisposed to being an entrepreneur. I should have probably been an entrepreneur from the get go. Um, so I do three different types of PR. I do a lot of traditional bookings and strategy. I do a lot of media training, which is really teaching executives who don't know how to communicate with the press, how to do it. And then I do uh, crisis PR, which can manage, which can range from handling a crisis when it's happening to um, to kicking a crisis in the butt before it happens. It's easier to kill a crisis before it's a crisis. And then I also do a lot of work of helping companies thread the needle where they can appear to both appeal to Midwesterners and gays. Again, because I'm one of these few people who can speak coastal elite and also speak gay and also speak MAGA. I'm one of the few publicists who can thread that needle. Okay, so you get into PR. How did your experience surviving a scandal and your experience growing up in this doggy dynasty that was constantly at war with animal rights activists, how did that influence how you look at reputation management and what to do uh, in the case of a scandal? Yeah, so I think I am, I'm, as a publicist, I'm one of the few people who's been on both sides of things. I've definitely written articles that cost people trauma. I've been through it. I saw my parents handle it. I've dealt with lawyers and NDAs. So I'm... I understand how to navigate the entire system, which I think is very rare. So it influences me in a lot of ways. I mean, number one, I think everyone has to remember every situation is different. Some publicists will say you do this, this, and this. That's not true. Every situation is different. It's also a game of poker. You have to play the card you're dealt. If you're dealt the jerk card, you can only play the jerk card. Uh, You see people mess up all the time where they try to play the card they don't have. Um, There are some people I know of who I think should have been treated differently by the media. Amber Heard, perfect example, should not have been railroaded. But she, her PR chose to play her as the victim, which did not have the victim card. She would have been better off going on SNL and mocking herself to change the topic. Mm -hmm. And because really what you want to do is you want to change the topic. Like sometimes you should just keep on posting. Sometimes you you should take a break. Um, Also, you never want to overreact. There's a lot of people I see who they obsess over their scandal. There's a woman who sued Taylor Lorenz, this uh, Hollywood celebrity influencer manager. And I only know about that woman's lawsuit and the fact that Taylor wrote something about her because she tweets about it daily. Right. Some people don't, like they overreact. And a a lot of times you think something is more important than it is. Corporations make this mistake often where they overreact. But there's software you can use to see the, um, to analyze how positive or negative the social feedback is. And that's really helpful to monitor what's actually the problem. Um, And then there are also some rules I know of just from dealing with the legals of it all. Like genuinely, you should not apologize in in a crisis Mm -hmm. because it will be used against you probably by a a lawyer. Mm -hmm. A perfect example, if you look at the Bravo reality stars who've been fired for being problematic, first of all, you're a Bravo reality star. That's why they hired you. 
they usually only fire them if they've issued an apology. Okay. Um, so, it, and it's also, uh, because I've been a reporter, that, and all, because I've been a reporter, I understand how reporters are going to see things. And for my mother, I always joke she was like the publicist for dogs because she'd be on the phone all day. My mom always invested in relationships. And PR is a lot about in relationships. The biggest mistake people make, especially social media influencers, is they don't invest, they don't see the value of PR because they're used to instant gratification. I met with this influencer during COVID who chose not to hire us because she just wanted instant gratification. And the next day she literally went to a third world country and brought COVID there. Oh, God. Did, Which if she had a publicist, they would have told her, don't do did that. Did she apologize? I don't want to get into it. <laughs> okay. One of your current co- clients is Caroline Calloway, who is herself no no stranger to scandal. Uh, will you remind our listeners who she is? Yeah. So she is the Gatsby of Cambridge, as they call her. She came to prominence in 2014, back when I worked on digital media. She had this bonkers idea to write memoirs via Instagram captions about her life in Cambridge. Some young girls loved her. Others hated her. She got a book deal that fell apart, partially because she had an Adderall problem, partially because she didn't like the book she had sold to the publisher. And then this woman, Natalie Beach, wrote a viral essay claiming she had ghostwritten Caroline's Instagram captions. Yeah. And this story was huge. The Natalie story, it was one of those things that when it came through on Twitter, it was like all of media's story, all of media Twitter was focused on this one this one essay, which happens every once in a while, and that was certainly one of those times. Oh yeah, and then unfortunately, and then it was a tragedy for Caroline because she was dealing with that, and the next day her father literally committed suicide. She was just dealing with hell. Yeah, the story is called "I Was Caroline Calloway." Uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, and it's basically she's basically taking credit for Caroline's work, for Caroline's Instagram post and this book proposal that she wrote, um, and the book proposal itself. She sold it for almost. I think it was almost a half million dollars. It was in the mid mid six figures. Uh, and yeah, it, it totally destroyed her her reputation. But I will say she also did herself no, no favors. There was a, a piece in BuzzFeed News, I think by Katie Natopoulos, about Caroline Calloway's uh, efforts to like organize these events for her followers where she way over promised what people would get. She sold tickets before she booked venues. It was it was like the fire fest of, of female influencers. Yeah, although she didn't really harm anyone. She gave people their money back, I believe, and it was like she she had too many jars. It was kind of over overblown, I thought. Mm-hmm. But and she she and Caroline says this herself during the creativity workshop scandal, she apologized and tried to do the right thing and just backfired. It created more fire. Right. I know Caroline. I met her actually back when I was an editor at Vice. When I was at Broadly, I had seen the Daily Mail article about her, which was kind of the first news coverage, and I assigned Lauren Euler to write the first profile of Caroline in an American outlet. And Caroline and I just instantly clicked. I mean, we're actually born within several hours of each other. (laughs) So we're just very on the same wavelength. And I had studied abroad at Oxford and I have relatives in England. So I've always, you know, had a relationship with England. And I went and visited Caroline when I was in London. I saw her in Cambridge and she was living in Sadie Smith's old dorm room where she claimed she was writing the next great American literary masterpiece, which it ended up she was. And that's when I first realized there was something more than just what the the glamorous life the Instagram captions showed. She had ripped up all the carpet in the room and there were like nails sticking out of the ground. And she asked me to climb a roof with her. She didn't mention it was a 400 year old roof. So there were literally like tiles sliding under my feet. There were holes in the roof. I, we nearly fell. We could have died. Um, and so I I know her from way back then. And when my scandal had happened, and she actually writes about this in her book, at the acknowledgments, um, 
she had disowned me because out of, you know, I, my scandal happened the same day as Harvey Weinstein. So it was very early on in all this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually misrepresented as straight by a lot of people. Rude. Very rude. I'm a gold star. And Caroline and I reconnected though, because last year she had moved to Florida. I, my husband and I live in South Florida. And so I went and visited her in Sarasota, you know, and she was apologetic and, you know, we just started con- talking constantly. And I genuinely believe Caroline's, one of the best writers of my generation. She just has an original voice where so many people don't. She's a real talent. And Caroline knows how to loop people in. So she ended up, I, you know, she, she she's, I joke, she's my only nonprofit client. Um, <laughs> she looped me into doing PR. She looped crumps into editing the book. And that's, uh, that's uh, Mike Crumpler. He's a sub stacker. He's uh, been discussed on this show as well. He, uh, he writes these like scathing takedowns of the dime square New York downtown scene. Yeah, so she looped him into editing it, looped me into doing the PR, which I actually think was brilliant on her part. Um, and so few people are fun, like, that and willing to do something. But she reminds me of Madonna. Like, so few people have, like, a persona where they'll play the PR game in kind of an almost deconstructional way. And she was down to do that. And we came up with this strategy of her releasing Scammer, her book, the same time Natalie was reaching releasing her memoir. And the reason I thought of that was because of when Kanye and the game released an album on the same day. Mm. And it was all over like Rolling Stone. And I also just love to do the opposite. Like I love to put, I've put uh, a porn star in the New York Times multiple times talking about politics. I've put, I like to put a high end person in the Daily Mail. And with Caroline, I just loved the idea of treating her like the artist she is and putting her out there as an artist. She's, I mean, according to the social listening software, she went from having mostly negative reactions to now, um, last time I checked, it was like 75% positive. Yeah. So her book came out, is it actually out right now? Um, so she self-published it. Uh, I think she's probably... It's called Scammer. It, she self-published it. The Washington Post did a full page uh, review of it, which they never do for self-published books. Um, yeah, she's been mailing it out. I have, you know, if you, anyone wants to copy, they could buy it from her website. Or if you're a journalist, I'm sure she'll be happy to send you one. Yeah. And so, and the book is getting absolutely glowing reviews. And and part of this, part of the narrative is that she, when Natalie Beach wrote this, uh, wrote this piece in New York Magazine, basically claiming credit for Caroline's work, the question was, is she even a writer? And it turns out that she is a writer. She's a fabulous writer. Uh, she's a genius writer. And you even see that in the, the lawsuit with her landlord, like her rebuttal to that. Will you, will you explain that? Yeah, she, I don't know the exact details, but she was renting an apartment in New York. She owed back rent. They, the landlord sued her and she, I mean, the lawyer replied, but it, it reads like Caroline. Um, and it reads like Breakfast at Tiffany's. Like she just has a voice, which is so rare in this age she is one of the few millennial writers with a voice and a point of view that is different she is a trendsetter not a trend follower i i love caroline okay so she is definitely having her moment in the sun right now uh there was a, a recent spread about her with glossy photos and i think vanity fair was that uh, it? vanity fair did a profile i believe glamour uk yeah she mentions her friend mitchell in this and i wondered if it was you yes i i am i am caroline's mitchell you were the friend yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, so she has pivoted. She has she has gone from uh, from scammer to, uh, to to darling now, and of course her situation is is very specific. But I'm wondering if you have some general advice for people about what to do and what not to do in the event of a scandal or a cancellation attempt or or anything like that. Well, I think number one, you have to think about the emotions of it because you're probably going through an emotional experience, and I think you need to talk to a friend 
have a, or if you have a great husband, like I do talk to your husband or wife, um, because your health is the number one priority, mental health, physical health. And you also need to remember everything can always be worse. This is, this is a long life. And I think if there's a legal situation that could arise, whether it's with an employer or there's criminal allegations, you need to talk to a lawyer before you do anything. That's, I would say that some publicists will ambulance chase and tell you not to go, you need to talk to a lawyer Um, because PR can backfire in some of these situations. But I think overall, you want to make sure you don't overreact. You don't want to apologize because it will just be used against you. This isn't, um, this isn't about right and wrong. It's about public relations. You should, and an apology will be used against you and you want to change the conversation. You know, if you can keep posting the best way to distract sometimes is to create another another scandal. Donald Trump does that on a daily basis. Okay, so what do you mean by that? If you look at Trump, who I think I personally don't like Trump, I think he's damaged this country, damaged the discourse. I I, I would love to never hear his name again. Um, But if you look at Trump, he will often have one scandal and then he'll do something else scandalous that's a little not as bad as the other thing to distract from it. And Donald Trump didn't invent that. Madonna would do similar things. And sometimes that is you need to change the conversation. Um, is is what you need to do. And it's also hard. I mean, if you can't afford a publicist, get one. However, a lot of people can't afford a publicist. It's expensive. A lot of people don't know don't know how to get one. So that that's why my company's actually creating something called 1-800-Cancel.com, where it's cheaper for people who do, are not media professionals or don't have a huge budget so they can get some sort of like do-it-yourself guide. Can you give me an example of something that would be on that guide? Yes. One thing would be if you're going to release a statement, release it once. But don't keep on relitigating it. I know so many people who've had scandals, so they just relitigate it, relitigate it, relitigate it. And it's like, no one wants to hear you talk. And you're actually causing yourself problems. Okay, I want to give you a hypothetical situation, although I'm taking this one from real life. There's a guy named Pedro Gonzalez. He's big on Twitter. He's a DeSantis guy. He's conservative, a former Trumper who has left the Trump camp and now is, is stumping for DeSantis. And Breitbart recently published an expose on on him and on some some messages, some DMs or, or text messages that he was a part of with some of his former friends who are still Trump supporters. So basically his old friends leaked his messages to Breitbart and a lot of these are anti-Semitic. And so Breitbart publishes this story. This becomes a scandal. What would you tell someone in his position, someone who actually has done something wrong? These these messages are real. In his situation, I think when you've said something as vile as from what I understand he said, you need to apologize and change your behavior. Okay, so... so that is the one, one of the few circumstances where I think you need to apologize because it is such vile statements. You need to apologize. And you also need to... I, you know, I that that is one situation where I would recommend where I would break my rule about apologies. Okay, okay. Uh, what if you are a uh, a reporter and you have published an article in an outlet about um, I don't know detransitioners or something like that, and all of Twitter is freaking out about it, but there's nothing actually wrong with your article? What would your advice be in a situation with that, like in a situation like that? So, two, there's two. When it comes to something like this, if it's just people on Twitter. You need to think about if these people matter. Because I have seen mm-hmm. many times where a reporter gets into this situation specifically and they start responding to people I have never heard of. Mm-hmm. And I'm someone who reads everything. I'm probably the only person in America with a Jacobin and Daily Wire Plus subscription. I read mm-hmm. literally everything. 
And if I haven't heard about them, I don't know why you're applying. I do have a rule of thumb. If it's not in a tier one news outlet, you might not need to reply. So I, in that circumstance, if, you know, the New York Times isn't talking about it, don't say anything. Just go, Mm -hmm. go about your life because you're actually going to make it worse. You're going to get yourself on a glad list by talking too much about it. (laughs) Another one, if we want to talk, if we want to do hypotheticals, I'd be happy to talk about Miranda Sings or Amber Heard. Yeah. All right. Who's Miranda Sings? Miranda Sings is a YouTuber. I believe her real name is Colleen Ballinger. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She is someone who's not on my radar. I'm not a YouTuber person. And I guess she had inappropriate relationships with fans. She's been accused of grooming fans because she exchanged some messages with her fans that were like young fans that were pretty weird, like asking if they were virgins, things like that. And some fans have come out and accused her of grooming. She sent very weird messages that are so inappropriate. Number one, if you're a celebrity, do not message fans. I think that I think this was before she was really big. No, some of them were when she was still famous. And this is something you see in the YouTube community where they don't have they don't necessarily have especially back then they don't have the most professionalized team so some of them just which is not to excuse what she did because it's it's weird it's weird to say the least um and it's i I disagree with what she did a lot of them in the youtuber community they all do back then it's so many weird things but you should never message minors you should never message fans period however if you're her and you've done that and now these messages are coming out it was not getting much play in some of the biggest outlets on earth it was getting play on in some outlets, but it wasn't something that my mother would have heard about, per se. Mm-hmm. And she's a YouTuber. YouTubers have scandals every day. She could have just kept on posting her videos and it would have died down. She instead decided to release a non-apology singing video. With a ukulele. Singing about the toxic gossip train. We'll post a clip here. Hey, it's been a while since you saw my face. I haven't been doing so great, so I took a little break. A lot of people are saying some things about me that aren't quite true. Doesn't matter if it's true, though. Just as long as it's entertaining to you. Right? You guys having fun? All aboard the toxic gossip train. You're chugging down the tracks of misinformation. The toxic gossip train. You got a one-way ticket to manipulation station. Toxic gossip train. Tie me to the tracks and harass me for my past. Cause rumors look like facts. If you don't mind the gaps, I won't survive in the crash. But hey, at least you're having fun. After she released this song, it went viral and has now been covered all over the media. And there are tons of like spoofs and remixes making fun of her. She's the one who made it a sensation. And she released it right before the 4th of July, which honestly was a great time to just release a two-sentence statement saying, uh, some of the things about me are untrue. However, I recognize I never should have been messaging uh, fans. I have changed the way I operate my business, period. She could have just released that short statement and then kept on posting. She could have... posted it on the Friday before 4th of July and it would have died on the vine. So she completely blew that story up. And now that she's blown it up though, I don't think she can pivot to another strategy. She has to stick with what she's done. And I think Singing? she should make a do- <laughs> Make a musical? No, I think she should make a documentary. A documentary in character is Miranda Sings called Miranda Sings is Cancelled. <laughs> and 
she has to just lean into it because she she dealt herself the ukulele singing card. Mm-hmm. So I think she has to go down that path now. Yeah, one of the things that you see is this. Uh, okay, so do you remember when Winston Marshall he was uh, he played I think banjo with that band Mumford and Sons, and he tweeted. Uh, something complimentary about Andy Noe's book about anarchists. Do you remember this? This was maybe last year or the year before. I don't. Banjo, again, I like, if you play that banjo, I run. I went to Sarah Lawrence. I know to avoid anyone with a banjo. Okay, so he so he tweets this thing about Andy Noe's book, and then he gets this flood of hate. And people are really pissed about this because they don't like Andy Noe. And so, but at the same time that he gets this hate, he also gets this wave of support for people who are like, no, this is a speech issue. And people who like Andy, sort of anti-woke anti-woke folks like that and he so but then he apologizes and so by apologizing he doesn't win over the people he's the first group of people that he's offended the Mumford and Sons fans so he doesn't win them over nothing will change but he also loses the support of the people who liked him for tweeting this book so just by apologizing he makes the situation so much worse for himself and he ended up actually leaving the band totally if I had been advising him before he released a statement I would have said say nothing Right. Or say something about how you believe in free speech and you reading a book is not a crime. Right, right. You could have turned it into a conversation about book banning. Okay, let's do a few more. Ariel Pink. We explain who he is, what he's accused of, and what you think he should do. So Ariel Pink is an alternative rock musician, I guess. He's not someone whose music I would have listened to. Who He got in trouble because he became a Trump supporter, I believe. I don't know the exact story. The only reason I know that Ariel Pink got in trouble is because Ariel Pink tweets about it every day. Mm-hmm. And then he gets retweeted by journalists I follow. And that's the only reason I know about this. And my advice to him when this happened would have been, if you're going to make a statement, make one statement. Don't talk about politics again and just keep on making your music. Well, and he he got in trouble specifically because he was at January 6th. He says that he wasn't at the riot, but that he went to Trump's speech. And he has been pretty fucking canceled. I don't think he he you know can play regular venues now. He's been pretty canceled, but, uh, but I think you choose to be canceled to a certain extent. What do you mean by that? Like, he chose to just keep on talking about it every day. Right. If he made a good, a great album, and just, he should just be making music. Like, I don't, I think you choose to be canceled, and some people get stuck. They get frozen in time, and just go move on with your life. That is, after my detransition piece came out in 2017, and I had my first little taste of scandal, one of my editors at the time told me, just keep writing. You need to write something immediately, publish something today about something completely unrelated, just to show people that you are moving on, and therefore they should move on too. And that's advice that I give other people who come to me now. I think that's great advice. I mean, if I could turn back time when my thing happened, if I wasn't NDA, I would have just kept on posting. Mm-hmm. Would you have said anything about what actually happened that you had been instructed by your bosses? to? I mean, I was so young and I was scared of being sued. I would have, I would have uh, just... I mean, I, w- I would have just tweeted out that voicemail. I still have. Well, that would have been that would have definitely changed the changed the conversation. Yeah, I would have just tweeted the wait till Monday and retweet their statement with that as the quote. Yeah. Okay. Let's do one more. Elon Musk. Elon Musk should hire security guards. Number one, I saw him at a party and he did not have security. And with what he is saying in public, yeah. he he needs to get security because I actually worry for his safety that he's going to get shot like Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. given how much he has aggravated him i think elon musk needs to be when you're ever you're the head of a publicly traded company you can't just joke around all day um and tesla stock has been hit hard in the last year but i think someone like elon is in his own stratosphere where he can get away with nearly anything 
I think Elon Musk is in a very, but at the same time, he needs to be careful with his investors. To me, everything he's he's doing to me seems ill-advised. Yeah, he's someone I wouldn't bet against, though, and here's why. If you remember when he took a hammer, I believe, to a car? I don't remember that. Why? It was at a press conference, and he was like, this car is indestructible, and he took a hammer oh, to the window. Oh, and then the window shattered? He got so much press, and that so many sells the car out of that. I think he's someone who's actually a much more sophisticated PR thinker than people think. I think the trouble with Elon is so many other executives see him, and they try to copy him, and they're not Elon. If you created PayPal, you can get away with a lot more. He's had so many successful companies. He, he has a lot more latitude. If you're a new startup investor, you don't have that latitude. Oh, God. I think everything he's doing is wrong. But. He's someone who would... I, I think he would be someone who would be benefit. It would benefit him to log off a little. Yes, it would. Wouldn't it benefit us all? All right, Mitchell. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? Um, you can find me at twitter.com slash bcc underscore Mitchell. Or if you're in trouble, you can email me at help at one dash eight hundred dash canceled dot com. And you can also read my Substack newsletter, the BCC newsletter. All right, Mitchell. Thanks for coming on the show. All right. Thanks again to Mitchell Jackson. And if you like what you hear, please check us out at blockedandreported.org and become a premium subscriber for just $5 a month. Primos get three extra episodes of this show every month, plus access to our great and growing community. Thanks as always to our Primos for keeping the ship running. Our show is produced with help from Tracing Woodgrains and the Mysterious Lux. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Katie Herzog, and Jesse is back next week, probably covered in soup.